If you've worked your way through the New Testament from cover to cover, this is one of those letters that you can read and sort of easily forget. Um, You can carry on to the next one without putting much thought into it. And perhaps you've thought about looking into a particular book of the Bible and doing some more personal study and, and digging into it. And as you think through what books you might choose, Third John is probably not very high on your list. For some, it could even be 66th on their list, and there's only 66 books in the Bible. Um, and yet, this is an awesome little letter. There is, there is much for us to gain from it. There is much from us, for us to learn from it. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That passage is more than just a good idea. That is this church's conviction that all Scripture is breathed out by God. God's finger is on every word in his book. And so um, I'm excited to be able to open up this letter for us this morning, and I'll also be able to do that later on this year. Uh, this this letter features or, or centers around two key people, this fellow called Gaius and this other guy called Diotrephes. And these two people um, feature in this letter, and there's this comparison and contrast between these two people, and we'll see more about them as we get on. Gaius stands as an example of the truth, uh, or that stands as an example that truth is both loved and lived. Meanwhile, Diotrephes stands as an example of self-exaltation and toxic pride. This leaves us with with many implications, some of which I'll explore this morning and others later on this year. So I want to read this letter for us, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll carry on. So this is what the third letter of John says. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. 
I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Lord, as we come before your word this morning, um, and we look at this, this warm letter from John to, to, to Gaius, Lord, I pray that we would, that we would gain much from it. Lord, I pray that, 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 that we would be encouraged to grow in the example that, that Gaius sets and to learn from him, and that we would also be warned from, from, from Diotrephes and the example that he sets. Lord, would you, would you glorify your son this morning that we may be changed to become more and more like him in Jesus' name. So Gaius stands as an example that that truth is both loved and lived. Uh, verse three says that he testified to your truth. These brothers testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Gaius walked in the truth. Now there are other names mentioned um, in in the New Testament with Gaius, but I mean it's not really a popular name in. English for some common reasons, um, but but Gaius is the most common name in the Roman Empire at this time. So he's probably not. So this Gaius here has probably not been mentioned at other points in the New Testament. He's a a prominent man in the church. He's respected and loved by many, and not less by John himself. See the way that John writes so affectionately to him, and the. The thing that John highlights about him is that, John, is that Gaius loves the truth and he lives it out. This report has come back to John about Gaius from the brothers, friends of John, who were shown hospitality by Gaius. And so this is an example of a Christian who has matured in both his understanding of the truth and also in his character, which reflects the truth. So firstly, I want to look at the truth loved what is this truth that that Gaius loved and earlier in John's writings in first John chapter 2 uh, we see John's understanding of what the truth is his explanation of of the gospel and John says this in first John chapter 2 1 to 5 he says my little children I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I want to highlight some key things from this passage here. Firstly, we're commanded to follow God's commands. God's commands, the Ten Commandments, reveal God's will for our lives. That we are to live in a way that is holy and pleasing to him at all times. Those commands are given for our good and for our joy. They show that that your best life now is not found in material blessings or in good health, but rather by living in the way that our Creator has determined the best way for us to live 
Secondly, it shows that that we do not follow God's commands perfectly. All of us are lawbreakers. All of us deserve the the just punishment for our sin and willful rebellion against God's good laws. This is why we need an advocate. We cannot advocate for ourselves, let alone for anyone else. The law shows us that we are unrighteous and that we are helpless in that state. But that's not all that this passage tells us. What does it tell us about Christ? That he is righteous. Christ is our righteous advocate. He appeals to the Father before us, for us, not on the basis of our righteousness, not on the basis of our ability to keep the law and to please God perfectly, but on the basis of Jesus' ability to do that because he is perfectly righteous. This text tells us that he is the propitiation for our sin, that he turned away the wrath of God by satisfying it himself on the cross. Jesus turned away the wrath of God that we so rightly deserved. And that's the heart of the gospel message. That creates the starting point to live as righteous people. This truth guides and shapes the the trajectory of a deepening obedience and humility within believers. The gospel frees us from ourselves by reorientating our affections towards Christ and neighbor. And Our church, Christ Sanctuary, our church's mission statement reflects this wonderfully. It says, to live as freed people, called to love God and neighbor. This is what the gospel did in Gaius. It reorientated him from a love for himself and a love for others. He showed these these men great hospitality. But that's what the gospel does in all of us. It, it, It reorientates us to love God and our neighbor. Before you were a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, then this is you, that you're bound to the law and you're bound to yourself. And the law shows you that you're a sinner. But if you're a Christian, now you have received Christ's forgiveness. The law now shows you not just that you're a sinner, but also the way that you can live in a way that pleases him. That law for believers is not a burden, but a joy because it gives us clear guidelines of how we are to love God and how we are to live to do his will. And as we live in this way, living in this way leads to a a fruit of obedience that is frequently forgotten. And that is gospel assurance, that we can be assured of our salvation because we can be assured of our salvation because of the objective work of Christ on the cross. It's a historical fact that Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected, proving that death and sin has been overcome. And the primary way that that this passage shows that we can grow an assurance of salvation is by walking in the way that Jesus walked, loving God and neighbor. The more that we obey God, the more that we understand his commands and walk in them, the more that we love God by, by, by doing by loving him in the way according to his commands. And the more that we love neighbor according to his commands, the more that we will grow in an assurance that we are truly saved because more good fruit is being seen. And that encourages us. In those times when we lack assurance, in those times, in those seasons where we struggle to obey, where we find ourselves trapped in sin, but yet still believing the gospel, that the... The historical mark of the cross 
stands knowing that our sin has been dealt with. And that motivates us further to obedience. So that's the truth loved. That's, the, that's an understanding of the truth, the gospel message. But then the truth is also lived. It's not just loved, it's also lived. And this gospel has taken root in Gaius's life, which is bearing fruit by him showing hospitality to the brothers who went to Gaius from John. Now, Gaius, he stands tall, I think, in Scripture as an encouragement for us in our own sanctification. Look at, look at the warmth with which John writes to him. He's thankful for him. He's rejoicing and finding great joy in this report that's come to John about Gaius. He's, he's encouraged by this man. There's a great harmony between the truth that Gaius loves and the truth that he is living out. It's reflected in his life. And I think when we look at such saints in Scripture or even saints that we know in our own lives or have read about in church history, the temptation for us can become to think, could I be such a person? And looking into this letter, I've been challenged and confronted with myself. If you know me at all, you know that I have faults and flaws, and I'm often frustrated by how slow sanctification seems. But I think if we're all honest, we'd find that that most of us have similar feelings about ourselves. We're not where we want to be. We're not as righteous as we would like. We haven't conquered our sins in the way that we would have hoped. Perhaps Gaius was just an exception. Perhaps he's just a standout saint. He's kind of, he sort of seems to me like, like the old gentle saint that has walked with the Lord for, for so many years that sits in the back of the church. You sort of wonder that they haven't become so perfect that Jesus hasn't just taken them into glory yet. But, and, and, and we, can, we can see that and we can often feel discouraged ourselves. Will I ever be such a person? Will I ever become as godly as that? Or would people say such things of me? But we've got to remember who God works with in his church. Paul describes this really well in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through to 31. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom to us from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is who God works with in his church. Sure, there are those in the church who are wise and have a noble birth, but the majority of us, the majority of people in his church, are just normal Ordinary folk from all sorts of backgrounds who are not impressive to the world by any stretch of the imagination. Those are the people that God takes and uses to build his church. Those are the people that God takes and molds into being saints. Not because of who they are, not because of the the starting point in their lives that God 
starts with and then just builds on top of that to, to slightly improve them. God works with people and builds everything into them that he needs them to be. He takes that which is weak and makes them strong. He takes that which is ugly and makes them beautiful. He takes that which is ungodly and causes them to be godly. Why? Not so that we can boast in ourselves, but so that we might boast in him. So that we might look at ourselves, that we might look at our lives and think, man, there is definitely no way that 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 I would become such a person. God has done this. God has done a work. The gospel orientates itself from away from relying on self and points us to relying on Christ. So that's a bit about Gaius, who stands as this example of truth that is both loved and lived. Meanwhile, Diotrephes stands at the other end of the spectrum. John is deeply concerned about him and will confront him uh, if, if John goes to this church. So Diotrephes stands as an example of, of self-exaltation and toxic pride. And the principal issue that, that John mentions about Diotrephes is that he likes to put himself first. So much so that he has established himself within the church that John has written to. And he's prevented John from having influence in the church by both rejecting his letter, his previous letter that John's written. That's been lost. That's not first or second John. This is, that was another one that hasn't been recorded. Perhaps Diotrephes burned it. So he's preventing John from having influence in that church. And he's refusing to show hospitality to the brothers that, that have been sent to that church by John. He's rejected John's authority as an apostle and is actively speaking nonsense about him. And it's, it's interesting that, to note that John isn't writing because he's concerned about Diotrephes' doctrine. First and, and second John both contain clear warnings and explicit warnings against heresies and people who have abandoned the faith. But here, John doesn't issue such a, a doctrinal instruction. But he warns about imitating evil in verse 11. And the example of evil that is given is the way that Diotrephes has been acting. Pride is at the root of this evil scheming and behavior. And I think it's important to realize that, that Diotrephes didn't just wake up one day and become this controlling figure within the church. Sin has, has grown in his life and led him to becoming such a figure. And it is destroying his church from, the outs, from, from outside influence. He's preventing good influence from coming in. And I think we'd be foolish to think that, that we too couldn't fall into a similar trap when we can. We, are, we too are susceptible to such pride. Perhaps not to become a controlling figure like Diotrephes at this point, but pride left unchecked can lead us and grow to become such a toxic person within church, within family, within all spheres of life. We must realize that we are more than susceptible to such an imitation of evil. So we must be active in our defense against such practices. So how can we guard against that error ourselves? 
in light of this passage and in our day and age, in what ways might we be tempted to put ourselves first and not listen to others? How do we avoid the pitfalls of diatrophies? Firstly, we've got to realize that we are not first. Diotrephes liked to put himself first, but he was not first. We must realize that we are not first. Jesus said that on this rock he will build his church. The rock being the confession that that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus builds his church with people who recognize that Jesus is first. If you think about this for a moment and reflect for yourself, the question quickly becomes, why would I want to be first above Jesus? Why would I want him and others to revolve around me? We all sort of, we can get that such people are just the most annoying people to be around. (laughs) I think it's, another way I think that we can think about this is, is, is by thinking about heaven. All Christians, even nominal ones, want to go to heaven. Nobody wants to go to hell. If you were given the option, do you want to sing it, swim in the lake of fire or the river of life? It's not exactly a hard choice. We all naturally want to go to heaven. But consider what heaven will be like. We will be gathered around the throne, praising Jesus who stands at the center of heaven. We'll be, we will be revolving around him and perfectly celebrating each other there for all of eternity. This momentary life that we're currently in will quickly, I think, be forgotten in amongst the bliss of uninterrupted, pure worship of Jesus and fellowship with each other. Pride will not exist in heaven. We will not want to put ourselves first in heaven. And so given this small piece of time in light of eternity, we have no time to need or or want to put ourselves first. It's a waste of time. Gaius was a man who who put others first and showed them hospitality. Diotrephes refused others and cared only for himself. Another thing to note about Diotrephes is that he liked the sound of his own voice. He rejected the authority of John in his teaching because he was into himself and he wanted the church to have his teaching only. He refused outside influence in this church. He, anyone that came in, he would refuse hospitality. He was, he was cordoning off this church from the outside influence, from apostolic authorities such as John, and making it all around himself. And I think we're at a very, we're at a very different stage of church history, which is a very good thing. But I think we can fall into that same era of not wanting our ideas to be shaped or influenced by outside influence because we, we can have that same challenge. And I think we can, we can have that same issue. We can have that same pride that refuses to listen to others who have both gone before us and are both around us. And I think we can do this both individually and corporately, refusing outside influence. First, Individually, and I think this is an interesting idea. But how many people have you met who are pursuing a particular avenue in their life with the reasoning that God has told them that they should do this? 
at times, there doesn't appear to be any other reasoning or depth behind their decision other than some secret voice which has whispered into their minds that this is a good idea. I think such thinking is dangerous because it becomes impossible to truly challenge this motive. Who is anyone to challenge what God has said? I think that type of understanding lends itself towards a relying on self and rejecting wisdom from others. Because the only thing guiding it is this inward thing, this inward voice. And it becomes and it becomes harder at that point to receive wisdom from others. I think a far healthier way to pursue desires or pursue these different avenues is by firstly recognizing that God does give particular desires and giftings for different things for different people. But he has spoken to us all in the same way through his word, which outlines how we are to live and to please Christ. That in turn leads to a humility with others as well, because it frees us from self and and looking inward and listening to self. It frees us from that inward orientation, and it opens us up to receive wisdom and external input from others who are more godly and wiser than ourselves. And then we can listen to them about how we can go about accomplishing such an avenue. Secondly, corporately. That's one way that we can rely on self and refuse wisdom and teaching from others individually. Here's another way that we do it. It can do it corporately. John confronts heresy in his letters, and he confronts specifically a bad leader here in Third John. But there has been 2,000 years behind us of truth-challenging, truth-testing, and truth-refining history, all built upon the Word of God. There has been much heresy, but also much testing and proving of that which is true. Historical creeds and confessions were born out of the need to clarify the essential doctrines of Christian truth to guard against error. What if, what if leaders go out of line and start preaching heresy or strange doctrine? Being informed by these key issues that have already occurred in history is essential towards guarding ourselves against error. We can listen to men from great we can listen to great men from the past through their writings and preserved documents, and I think to ignore them reveals greatest pride and arrogance to think that we can work it out ourselves again. History shows that if we peop, if we try and work it out for ourselves, those people who do that they often end up in error and major heresy. We must consider church history. We must listen to to these great men and documents from the past. We must have humility to realize that, that Christianity has not just sprung up in the 21st century. It is built on generations and centuries before us. We must listen to the past. We must let our ideas and our doctrines be shaped by that which has gone before. And at a practical note, I think that the equip class this year is going to be very helpful for a lot of us. Um, as it's looking into key doctrines of Christianity that are, that, and, and the understanding of those doctrines is shaped by history. And Jono knows more about that, and he's announcing it. Um, 
And I think another way, a third way that we can stop listening to others or celebrating others is because of a jealousy or envy of others in their position, success, or gifting. Within the church, we, we, we see people from all sorts of different backgrounds with all sorts of different levels of success, with all sorts of um, ideas and vocations, and, 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 and there's just so much variety. And often there can, be, there can be jealousy towards those who are doing well. There can be a pride built up that refuses to listen to such people. But what do we do when, when we find ourselves not open to others because we are jealous of them? What do we do when we are not open to others because of um, because of their position, their success, or their gifting that, that, that shuts us down from receiving wisdom and input from others? I think a, a good remedy for that is, is to invert John's prayer for Gaius. Um, in verse 2 of 3 John, he John says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And I think if we see that people are doing well in their soul, that we should pray for them to do well in their health. If they are doing well in their health, then we should pray for them to do well in their soul. The more that we, the more that we seek others' good, the more that we celebrate their successes, the more that kills the pride within our own hearts to listen to that that that, stop, that prevents us from listening to others so this the, Gaius and Diotrephes stand tall in this passage as examples both of Gaius stands as an example of of one to emulate to seek to be like to learn from and Diotrephes serves as a as a warning to us of to not become like such a man and to be careful of the pride that lingers in our own heart but we will never we will never carry such a good reputation as Gaius by just trying to be like Gaius by just trying to show hospitality to others there is a far greater motivation there is a far greater person that we can look out look at who we can become like and that is that is Christ that is Jesus himself and i want to just close by reading these two passages just out loud um and then i'm going to pray and and these passages i think are just so clear about how a believer's orientation in our life and the way that we think should be the more that we think about Christ and who he is the more we will become like him and i think these scriptures just so clearly depict that so the first is philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through to 11 and then second corinthians chapter 3 verses 17 to 18 so philippians 3 2 paul says this do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. 2 Corinthians 3 Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit.